I'm Luke Hupton. I'm an art therapist, counselor, and settler on the unceded and traditional territories of the Stalo and Chilkawaiq First Nations in British Columbia. This is The Healing Story, a podcast about the journeys we take back from mental illness, addiction, trauma, and loss. For our first episode, I'm joined by Christina Tucker-Wise, an author and film producer based in California, who lost her brother Sean to a fentanyl overdose in 2018. Thank you so much for being my first guest. No problem. I really want to start at the beginning. So I really want to talk about like where everything began. Like where were you born? Like where did you grow up? So we grew up in uh, Los Alamitos, California. Uh, my dad, a, my dad's a, a helicopter pilot. He's a Vietnam vet. Um, and so he was based at the army base in Los Alamitos um, for most of our time. Um, and we had a good childhood. I mean, it was not something that was, you know, my parents are very loving. They're very supportive, um, through everything. And we, you know, we have an older half brother from my dad's first marriage that, um, came before us, but we had a good close knit family. Um, Sean was always an introverted person. He's a cancer to me. Like he's one of those, like he feels things a lot and things were hard for him. And sort of like when he went through high school and all of that, um, it it just, I think I was an overachiever. I was kind of in the ASB, uh, you know, track captain doing all those things. And he kind of started to fall lower on that. Um, So then I went off to college And, you know, I I mean, yes, he had gotten in trouble for smoking pot when I was a senior and he was a sophomore, you know, like, but things that like everyone I knew had kind of dabbled or gotten in trouble for. So it didn't feel strange to me. Um, And then my parents, so my freshman year of college, uh, there was one night I just couldn't sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night. I just didn't sleep well. And then I was driving to school. I was kind of up all night. And then I was driving to school at 8 a.m. My mom called me. And um, so Sean had gotten, um, he got picked up by the cops. Apparently he had been dealing. Um, And so he had had some problems. And I was aware of those things. But my parents' route, now this was 2001. Okay. So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the camps where they sent the kids to for 30 days where they'd have to go light a fire and, like, learn to, like... No, I'm not familiar. 20 years ago, it was, like, a popular... They did, like, a reality show on it, which is, like, the worst thing you should do for addicts. Um, but it was like a popular thing that people would do to put their kids. So your kids had a problem. 
you sent them to these camps. Um, so they had people show up at 5 a.m., take him from the house. He got so pissed and he was so angry, he ended up kicking out the back windshield of the car that they put him in. They had to put him in a straitjacket. He arrived to the airport. Um, this was before pre-9-11, but he... Um, Basically, they said you can't put him on a plane. And, like, I guess they had forgot to pack his eyeglasses or something. So my dad came to the airport, and he got more crazy. So they had to drive him to Utah where the camp was. And then after that, he went to boarding school. So it didn't work out. Clearly, that was not the right rehab situation for him. My dad is a military guy. My dad thought this would be the right thing. Um, and so he was there for the rest of his junior year. And then eventually they ended up having problems with the school, my parents as well. And, you know, some of these schools, are, they're very questionable. Um, and they brought him back for, to finish high school. And from there he had ups and downs. Um, you know, he'd try college for a semester. It would work. He would be really good. Didn't do good. Good you know, bad. And then, um, so I, I kind of thought it was around 2000, it was 2011 that I found out that he had, he was addicted to heroin. Um, my husband and I, 10 years later, 10 years later, my husband and I got married in 2010. Um, and I was telling, I remember the month before going to my mom, he's got Asperger's because Asperger's was like a new thing that kind of came out. He's socially awkward. You know, he doesn't do this normal thing or that normal thing. So I was sending my mom articles. I'm like, let's talk to his therapist. Let's get, you know. Um, and then my husband and I went to a work trip in Europe and came home and my parents like, we need to talk to you. And so I just remember being on this call and this like earth shattering, like, and looking at my husband, I just wrote on a pad of paper, Sean's on heroin. And, you know, getting that, you know, so he, um, he did detox, which obviously was a really hard process, um, first of many. Um, and then he was in a home and, you know, we went every week to visit him in his home and to do all that. And he did really good for about a year. And then he relapsed again in 2012, um, my, you know, he, he had addiction therapists throughout this process. Um, and so in 2012, it was around Thanksgiving, I was pregnant with Mari. So I was about eight months pregnant. My mom took him out and she administered the detox herself. Um, which my mom has a saying is mothers, uh, go where angels fear to tread. That's beautiful. And it was definitely one of those, you know, she, he didn't like the hospital situations. She thought she'd try this. And he actually stayed sober for a while um, through most of, you know, I had some nervous aspects when my daughter was young. He was living with my parents. He, they eventually moved him out. He got his own apartment. He really did seem to do really well. Um, and all that kind of lasted until, I want to say 2000, 
15, 16, he kind of went through a couple of, you know, rocky roads. Um, it, must have, it was 2017 that he called me because we were starting our own business, you know, and this is where one of those things where like you're, you know, my husband and I, we started our own business and this is a risk, you know, you're not working for somebody, you know, and there's other times where he might've fallen off or he drank or did something, but it, you know, if he wasn't doing drugs, I was like fine with it, you know, but the alcohol was almost more of a problem that he would call me at 11 o'clock at night and yell at me for no reason, where the heroin, I just wouldn't hear from him. So it kind of had that like, you know, um, and then so in 2007, but you know, you kind of know when somebody's like off. So he called me and said, you know, I've been trying to, I've been, I, I fell off the wagon. I've been trying to clean myself up. I've been doing it and I can't do this without you. And it was like a really sweet kind of, you know, great. Okay. I'm here. What do you need? You know? And so that kind of started this long process of us trying to get him help and letting him being open with us when he, it wasn't working. And that's a difficult thing because you want them to be open to you, but if you checked into a detox or rehab and then left, I know he's still using. So how much do I, like, I'll always take his call, but how much do I let him around my girls? You know, and how this much... This is, like, having worked in addiction for a few years now as a counselor and as a therapist, these gray, blurry lines, there's no kind of... Uh, there's no set rules, right? There's no guidebook. There's no, it's, it's very much up to the discretion of each family, each person. And something that stuck out mm -hmm. to me was almost like the creativity that had to be had in how you approached helping him even like hearing about your mom and, and, you know, her detoxing him and, and even like how you all kind of have rallied around him but I've done so having to do that with your own boundaries. Like that must be. It, it was something that, um, you know, I probably should have had a therapist during that time. Um, and when I first saw my therapist, that was her first comment. <laughs> was like, you're a little late to the party as far as like handling this aspect. Um, but yeah, I had to create. And there were certain things, I mean, that's why he moved into his apartment in the first place, was because I told my parents, I can't bring my 11-month-old to your house. And I had fears of her walking in and he would be napping and just not wake up. We've had many discussions, you know, me being here in Canada on the West Coast, and obviously you being in California on the West Coast, and I'm sure that there's even differences between where I am versus where you are, but have you, how have you found like the approach to addiction in terms of treatment? Like, is it very 12-step? Is it harm reduction? Like, what kind of, what was Sean's experience? It's very 12-step. Um, and unfortunately, California has sort of like, there's also the bougie ap approach, I want to call it. I've heard. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I watched the, uh, there's the Ben Affleck movie, The Way Back, 
Yes. <laughs> and and I at the end and no and I think it's you know it's not a bad movie. It's just I'm like was that an ad for Malibu? <laughs> There's like the the seaside Malibu addiction center or whatever and. Um, but there's a lot of people that have gotten addicted through their parents' medication or whatnot. Um, and th- there are some of these beautiful addiction centers in these beautiful homes, but it's a huge money-making profit. Um, and so and so that's kind of the deeper side of all of that is what we started to learn as we tried to get him help and where he needs to go and insurance and... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with some of the fraud that has happened. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Okay. And you know, this is, this is, okay, this is a rabbit hole. It is a terrible. But this is really interesting because I think the one that you're talking about is where a lot of the celebrities went as well. Like when they had like the DUIs and stuff, like I think Lindsay Lohan went there and like, you know, it's very like palm trees, kind of, it looks like a spa, you know, it doesn't look like it, it looks lush. It's nice, and and I'm not saying that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, um, but when you start going through the 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 other part of it, um, and I have to send you some articles. It's interesting because we do here in Canada we have um, private you know treatment centers we have that you can go. Um, what they normally try and have as well, and maybe this is because of the way our healthcare system is is structured, is they will have beds that are funded by the taxpayer, by the healthcare system. So I work predominantly with youth. So um, I work with anywhere between like the ages of 12 to 25. Quite honestly, there's, there's normally never a cost um, for them to go to treatment. You know, after he, this might be jumping, but after the, so um, when he came to us in 2011, I think he had been doing it for about two years, right? So, um, but, and I don't have, maybe you have more knowledge on this. It it really stopped his testosterone. So he grew man boobs. Um, now he's also at risk of breast cancer and all those things. Um, and as things were getting better with him, you know, the year that he died, he died in June, June 22nd of 2018 was when we found him. It was probably a few days beforehand. Um, he, he had detoxed three times. Um, the first two times didn't last. The third time did, and he was about a month sober. Um, but he did have surgery to remove that tissue. Um, and so... Is that for like the, like they're on the chest area, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the insurance company, he passed and they said, well, you still have to pay it. And I think it was a couple thousand dollars, you know, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was a couple thousand dollars that they were... You know, um, he had dental work. He was having dental work because it messes up your teeth. Um, and before we go into like the day that you found him, I'm curious about like what he was actually using at the at the point where I know you you kind of you kind of talked about how he started and it was kind of like experimenting, I guess. It was around at the time, and you mentioned opiates. Um, and it also makes sense that 
he was <laughs> a lot less vocal when he was using opiates than when he was maybe using alcohol. <laughs> so, um, but it can also take away the thing that stops us from talking about how much pain we're in. And he obviously felt safe with you because he was, he yes. called you, right? Um, and, and all of this. So, you know, the problem is he was 30, I, I want to get this right. He was 32 when he passed, a um, couple weeks before his 33rd birthday. Um, so with normal people in their lives, you know, a lot of his friends were married, starting to have kids. And that's where everybody was. And I think he got to that point where in 2017, when he called me, like his friends were just moving on and, you know, or getting more serious girlfriends. They, they weren't married. They weren't, some of them, some of them were, but um, not everybody. And so he kind of realized he needed family. He needed my mom and I, um, you know, and he asked for my dad and my brother, my half brother to be kind of separate from some of this, just in the conversations. And I totally understood. Um, so he went and he, he detoxed, he went to rehab. He was in a home for a month or so, um, in 2017. Well, that's when you get the calls of the, um, in the program of here's my truth, you know, um, so I remember we were in Napa for a work thing and he called me. It was around Father's Day. Uh, my parents were out of town. My parents travel a lot for my dad's work and whatnot. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I one reason I knew I needed to get help was because I used fentanyl. Yeah. And so I didn't know what fentanyl was. And I was like, okay, you know, he's like, I used it a few times. And then that was, that frightened me enough to get help. So of course I Google it and look into it. And I just was like, oh my God, I'm so scared. This is a frightening thing that he is now battling because I've seen every single step and, um, you know, and, and a side note, my, my uncle back in the day had done heroin for a while um, for a couple of, about 10, 15 years, I think, but occasionally, um, I don't know how you do that occasionally, <laughs> but I know, but he had a lot of other, you know, so addiction runs in our family. That's definitely something that is, um, some people can, you know, they can pick up a drug and they can put it down again. And some people pick up a drug and they get sucked into this black hole you know, like Sean did. And some people, they have a drug that is like their weakness. That's the thing that they'll always be addicted to. Just like, for example, for one person, it might be Coke. It might be the stimulant kind of drug, but they can pick up and down, you know, an opiate, like it's nothing. And it's the same with like opiates Mm -hmm. versus cocaine or or whatever it might be. I know, you know, you were talking a little bit before Mm -hmm. about physical effects like teeth and things like that and meth is notorious for that crystal meth and and obviously like we're looking at the actual mechanism for what these drugs do like are they are they sedating do they calm us down um are they an upper are they you know um and what kind of effect do they have so um and it sounds like he really felt heard maybe not that he didn't feel heard by his half-brother and his dad but there was something there 
for you and your mom that he really felt he could trust you and, and confide in you? Oh, and, and we talked, I mean, and now when I look back between that 2017 admission and the 2018 um, overdose, I, you know, I could ask him, hey, that one time, were you on this? Were you doing this? You know, and we had a lot of those open conversations. Um, so it, it, it was a, it was an odd thing because I could say, but he also had this like, I can't get hurt. So he smoked it. He smoked heroin. He smoked fentanyl. He smoked it. He goes, I'm not shooting up, you know? And then, so he had gotten to a car accident in, um, he'd got, I, I forget. So his car broke down in January of 2018, um, and which meant he couldn't, he was an Uber driver. So he couldn't, he couldn't work and he couldn't get his drugs. So it tossed him into, um, what did they call it? The, um, um, just the, the relapse of just like everything, his whole body like shutting down, you know? And so he said, okay, well, this is a good time to sober up then you know, because he was feeling the effects already. So he said, I might as well get myself checked in. Um, and he went to go get checked in. And of course, the only hospital that took his insurance was right by my house. Now he lived like an hour away from me. Um, so at the time we were in the process of moving. Um, and my mom called me and she goes, tell him you moved. Don't tell him you live there anymore because he wasn't thrilled about the process. And I got like three angry calls later. Um, so I just told him we're not at that address. It's an empty address. Um, cause he lasted about three days there. He had never gotten his wisdom teeth removed. So all the drugs that he was doing was, but his wisdom teeth were impacted. And so he had to have like major dental surgery. And so he left the rehab center and then we said, okay, well this, so he was basically doing it from the conversations we had just to maintain the, the pain, not just so he wouldn't go. It wasn't like he was getting high constantly. He'd do it kind of like when he woke up in the morning and then when it faded, he'd start his Uber driving. He'd go till about two come home, sleep for a little bit, wake up when the, when the effects started happening, the withdrawal, he would do it again and he would do small amounts. And so that's what he did until he went to rehab again. And then he did a good week of detox and then was home for two days before he started it again. Um, and then, and then he, uh, and he really relapsed just for a short little time before he did it again, and then actually it stuck. So the the problem with that is I think it gave him that, like, I can just keep on going back. Um, and he was being very honest with me and that, you know, I'm smoking it. I'm not shooting it up. I don't think I can overdose if I shoot up. Fentanyl's not that way. And so I don't know if he just couldn't get the heroin, so he got the fentanyl. I mean, I don't know his thought process of all of that. But he really was trying to manage it, which is a... It, it shows you 
I suppose, in a way that he didn't, he wasn't able to see his life without it. Like, he was trying to make it as normalized as possible into his routine. And you are right to say mm-hmm. the, and I know we didn't really speak kind of explicitly to this, but fentanyl changed everything. Like, it really did. Like, it was already a crisis. Like, the opiate yeah. crisis was already terrible and rife in in North America. Um, and there are some communities that are extremely affected by it, um, some more than others. And the the scary thing about fentanyl, and this is something that I talk to my clients a lot about, and some that I some I have lost to a fentanyl overdose because they is that you don't know whether you're taking it or not. Like you you can go out and you can get you know I have a lot of young people who go out they they say oh I'm taking Xanax, and I say they they don't in in Canada anyway like there, there's not a lot of prescriptions for Xanax anymore, so the very the the idea that this these pills are out there um is it's not happening you know it's it's compressed fentanyl with other sometimes it's baby powder even you know and people are snorting what they think is cocaine and it's lining their lungs with stuff that isn't supposed to be inhaled yeah yeah it's a very frightening drug (laughs) Um, the more that I did research into it, you know, before and after, um, you kind of realize like, wow, this is not, um, you know, and I think he, you know, he knew my uncle had done heroin. So I think he thought I can balance this, but I will say that I, when looking back and, you know, and talking to my therapist, I saw my brother and this was, he saw life here and he had this addiction here. And both of those were tugging at him. And he, he kept trying for this. Um, the problem is this ended up being such a giant killer. And, you know, it is, I don't, I don't think so many people, like, you know, he was a, about a month sober when he did the fentanyl that killed him. And so, you know, I think maybe he could have, and I know he's probably been a month sober and then did heroin again, and it didn't kill him. So I think he kind of thought that would be okay. Did you, to your knowledge, was it, did you ever understand, like, what was driving his addiction? Because you said he had a lot of therapy and he had a lot of, but was he able to go there, do you think? Like, was there an ability to, like... He... Yes and no. I mean, so he had a lot of anger at my parents. So uh, every time that we talked about it, he he really blamed my parents for ripping him out of his high school experience and putting him in those rehabs. And, you know, looking back, maybe if they would have just left him. But he was dealing and he was, but he wasn't dealing serious drugs. So did that push him to maybe the next step? that he couldn't, you know, maybe I should do the thing that I got punished for. Um, Well, and it sounds as well like, you know, to speak to your parents a little bit, like at the time, that was probably what they were advised to do. Like that was was the thing, right? It was like, do you want to help your son? Here he goes. Well, and it's funny because they they had this doctor that they used for counseling, for drug counseling. Um, And... Shortly after Sean died, my mom called the office to let them know. And 
the doctor died from a heart attack within like this, like two weeks of my brother dying. And it was just like, my mom was like, isn't that funny? Like this person that we had kind of trying out, like they both kind of, um, there was like some sort of odd irony in all of it. Um, yeah. now I, I, I just also, he's very stubborn and he, he had a mentality that I just didn't have. Like I worked very hard for everything I had. He was like, well, I should expect this. And I was like, well, you didn't go to school. So why should you start off in any job with a $60,000 a year salary with no degree? You know, like you've got to work for these things. This is what, you know, and the more that everybody around him started kind of getting and obtaining things, he just said, well, why don't I have those things? Um, So there was like a very Peter Pan mentality that I think everybody focused on his drug addiction and not some of the other issues that might have been underlying. That's a really good point that you make. Um, And it's something, you know, here in here in Canada or the, the professional term, which is more so I think what my job revolves around is concurrent disorders. And Mm -hmm. the roles that we have here in BC as concurrent disorders therapists is to treat both mental health and trauma and addiction at the same time. And quite often, an outpatient therapist um, wouldn't be working alone, Mm -hmm. but would be working within the the lens and the framework of that they all inform each other. And something that struck me when you were talking about his anger towards your parents was it also sounds like he's ang- he was angry at the world. Yeah, very much so. I mean, And that's what I got a lot of phone calls. That's why I couldn't, I wouldn't give him my address. Right. And I wouldn't tell him where I was. I mean, he had now, I mean, there was times he attacked my dad, tried to choke him. I mean, there was many times that I feared his, uh, just, I thought he was going to kill my dad. I, you know, they found when after he died, they found parts of guns in his house. You know, um, so I mean, I had a lot of anger and fear—not anger, but fear of like what he was going to do. Um, and you know, of course, he threatened me at times. You know, and I think when we were going through this that period, just explaining that to my husband, like, "Hey, I'm frightened," mm-hmm. you know, by handling him, but I'm the only one. Yeah. You know, and having to go through that because, but then what is that social, I'm not a therapist, you know, I mean, I, I can say what I think certain things are, but at that point he's in his thirties, he has to get his own help, but he had shut himself off from so many people in the world that, you know, that, that help wasn't going to come. Yes. You know, yes. and I, I spoke to a lot of his friends later and he even I want to say a couple, six months ago, maybe there was, he lived in this apartment. It was like four apartments. And, uh, um, and when he first moved into the apartment, he was clean. He was really good. And he made friends with these girls that went to a nearby college upstairs. And, you know, they were actually really good for him. They kind of like kept him social and, you know, um, and so, but it was about a year after he died, one of them reached out to me on social media and was just like, I want, you know, you know, I just realized this. And I think eventually when he started, he started closing them off as well, you know, and, you know, I was just like, you know, I'd love, 
you to share any like great memories you have of him with yeah. me because that would be nice to remember him in that way before he just started you know even when we went to clean out his apartment we had two of his friends come we realized one of them hadn't been there in two years he saw him every month but he just never came into his house you know and so there was definitely some mental illness issues beyond the drugs An area that I'm interested in as a professional is the intersection of predisposition. So maybe you're a sensitive person to begin with. And if you're a sensitive man in this world, what does that mean? How do you internalize things? How do you compartmentalize emotions? And, And how and to what level does that predispose you to addiction or other things, you know, that could be compounded by events that you, you know, I I just think about him being sent to these places or doing these things and maybe how he really like just kept that all inside of himself. He he did. And he, he, he was a very emotional, sensitive person. And I think he also like leaned into the stereotypical, like my dad being this army guy, you know, And yes, my dad is right-wing army guy, but like my great uncle, my dad's uncle is gay and my dad's been always very accepting of that. So like there are some things that like, yes, my dad is this person, but like he's also not. But when you start to look at people of just one thing and not all the colors, then it can be hard to communicate on a level when you're just judging them that way. And I think the two of them started just seeing each other like this and never could um, move on. And, you know, I mean, but also Sean never found, I mean, my other thing is Sean never, he's a very sensitive person. He needed an outlet. Um, And I mean, I think this is true with every human being. And some human beings are are better than others without it. But when you have this particular personality, they have to have some sort of passion outlet to get into. And, um, you know. It's almost like a reason, uh, uh, like, a, like a purpose, you know, like, right. a, like a devotion of some kind. It's like a lot of us get it from our career. We often mm-hmm. go, we are often drawn to the things that fill us up. But if nothing is filling you up, then you're always kind of half empty or completely empty. You're never going to, yeah, get to where you want to be. And unfortunately, Sean chose drugs. Because even when he got sober, I guess it was in 2017, um, pot had just been legalized. So he's like, great, I'm going to make money off of weed. You know? And I was like, "Um, you're not you don't have a business mind. You don't come to, you know, and people are making money off of that industry, but they're not addicts, you know? So it's like, you can't take, you know, he could have made money off of recovery and helping others if he got to that point, or, you know, that could have been his passion. Um, but he just really never like clicked with the AA program. And I, you know, I understand that it's not for everybody. There's other options, but they're difficult to find. And um, the, the option that we had discussed and that he was moving forward on was a uh, working with a self therapist. 
and really creating a very individualized plan for him. Um, and it broke my heart. When he died, we went to my parents' house. She had left like three messages on the answering machine. So, you know, she had definitely, they had started those steps. It just didn't get to that process. But, but people in your life are going to suck or not at some point, whether it's your father, your dad, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your best friend, your kids, they're going to create turmoil. So you have to be able to like kind of look inside yourself and figure out how to handle that turmoil. Um, and that was something that he struggled with. We're, we're, we're talking today, it's April 15th, 2020, and um, Sean died last, is it la- was it last year or the year before? 2018. I just, I just want to go briefly back to that day when he passed away. Where, where were you? What were you doing? Because I know you hadn't heard mm-hmm. from him. Is that right? Yeah. So he, so my parents were in, you know, he had been doing good, clean. Uh, my parents had him watch their house because they were in Greece to visit my uncle, my great uncle. Um, and so he had a dentist appointment on Wednesday and my mom tried calling him to see how it went. Um, and like I said, dental issues had been a trigger problem. Um, and he hadn't shown up and he didn't call my mom back. But two weeks before they were somewhere, they were in Australia before that, like maybe three weeks before. And he didn't call me back for two days. And when he finally called me back, he goes, what is you and mom's problem? Like you have to hound me. And I'm like, yeah, I do have to hound you because this is where we are in life. This is what we're going through. You have to check in. I have to check in. If my, if I don't come home, my husband needs to know. So this is our relationship now. So I, you know, I gave him like a day of kind of like, maybe he's just pissed at me again, you know? And then, so the next day I called and I, I go, you know, okay, you're going to call me back. You're going to call me back, text him, text him. Didn't hear anything. Phone was going to voicemail right away. Um, not getting the blue on, on message, getting green responses, so I'm just like, okay, this is not going well. I, then I started yelling at him over text because I thought if I piss him off, if he calls me back and yells at me and says the worst things ever to me, he's alive and I don't care. But he didn't. So um, I had a dream that – so my brother is a huge soccer fan. It was – the World Cup was starting soon, Um and I had a dream that he was a little kid. Now, I have two little kids at this point, And um, we went to a, a soccer game, and I lost him in the crowd. Okay. And it was that feeling of searching for him in a crowd. You know, like if you ever lose your kid at the grocery store or Target. So I, I woke up, like, really just not in a good mental place. Um, called him a couple times. Um, went for a long run. But it's also, I'm in L.A., he's in Orange County, it's L.A. traffic, it's about two and a half hour drive in the afternoon. Um, And I still had work to do, get kids from school, all of that fun stuff. So, um, plus I had a hair appointment that I always do in Orange County. This is the silliest stuff that, like, comes into all of (laughs) This is This is, like, the stuff it's made of, right? Right. It's, like, all the little pieces that kind of... So we, I, I always get my hair done by the same woman for the last 15 years in Orange County. Um, so, but 
the plan was that I'd get my hair, like we'd go to lunch, I'd go get my hair done, you know, or I'd get my, I forget which one came first. So I was supposed to beat up with my brother. Um, and so I remember sitting down with my husband at Friday afternoon and going, okay, so if he's just drugged out, do I feel safe going to his house? If he's overdosed, do I call them, bef- do I go before or after my hair appointment? Do I, yeah. like... <laughs> Did you, were, were you, like, drawn to a specific kind of outcome, or were you just kind of going through them in I, your I, mind? In my heart, I knew he was dead. Okay. But it's like, okay, you have to go find a dead body. Like, if you know that, and th- this is when, like, as a writer, I've, like, set, like, my characters up into this situation. So, like, now I'm looking at this situation right now. So, if you think you're going to go find a dead body or somebody on a lot of drugs, which I really didn't think that was the case, but how do you handle that? What are your next steps? How do you, like, for your normal person, it's just like, you know, a mom, I don't know what to, 18 years or whatever of, um, and so... I, I think I just became a nervous wreck. So finally, like, we we're putting the kids to bed, and my husband looked at me, and he goes, you're not going to sleep tonight. Let's just go down right now. So within, like, 30 minutes, we packed the kids up, put them in the car. We drove down to my parents' house. Um, he made me wait in the car because we, you know, he was supposed to be taking care of my parents' house. Um, so Jason went to check to make sure that he wasn't there, Um and then, so we went and we put the kids to bed. And I remember going through, and um, the house cleaner comes on Thursday. And this is Friday night. All of the carpets, no one had walked on them. Uh, there was food in the fridge. There was two half-drink bottles of wine in the fridge. There was um, swim trunks, uh, his swim trunks and his towel out by the pool. There were, like, signs of somebody living there, but somebody coming in and cleaning up. And, you know, my, my husband, we, we make wine films. Wine is our thing. My husband tasted the, the wine. He goes, this has been open for at least two days. So we knew he hadn't been there, which meant we have to go to his apartment. So um, that's kind of where I chickened out, and I couldn't do it, you know? And... So um, my husband had never been to his apartment, so he drove over there. It's about 15 minutes from my parents' house, um, FaceTimed me to help direct him to the door, and I remember him. He goes, okay, found it. I'm going to call you back. And the thing was the door is unlocked. He could see him through the window, the front window, and he had fallen off the couch onto the floor. So um, then Jason called me back and goes, I just want you to know I'm going to call 911. And then maybe five minutes later, he called me back and said, when the paramedics arrived, and it was quick, um, and he goes, I'm so sorry, your brother's dead. And so I, you know, obviously I broke down, but then my parents were on their way back from Greece. They were, they, my uncle lives about four or five hours out of Athens. So they were staying at the hotel to catch a flight to London that night. And so... Uh, another point I chickened out. I said, you got to call him and tell him. So he just called, said, Sean died, call Christina. And they called me. And then, and then I made the calls to my older brother and other family for the next two, three days, trying to track down his friends. Um, and, you know, Jason stayed there. Of course, when the police arrived in the corner, 
they thought Jason was there doing drugs with him. So they were, they, they were like a little, and then they realized this was like a wellness family checkup because um, he had been, they, we think he passed either Tuesday or Wednesday. I think Tuesday. Um, so it had been a couple of days, obviously, the smell, the, all the nastiness was there. It was not a pleasant um, experience for my husband. He was there till about 2.33. Came back to my parents' house. We were up till 5 or 6, just talking, crying, going through it. Um, and I got up, and I went and got my hair done. I think my mom was 11 or 12. Now, I know this, you know, I've known her for, she's a friend at this point. But, but, but you know, I wonder if that was probably the best thing you could have it, done. It, some sort of normal, like, I just, like, I don't know what else to do, you know. I, you know, and I, I just went and I, I Ubered. I didn't drive because I didn't feel comfortable emotionally. Um, and, and then I had to go back, but then I had to tell neighbors so we've lived in our neighborhood, gosh, since I think I was three. And so, you know, this these are the, the, the parents that we grew up with. And, you know, my mom's best friend, my mom has two very close friends. And one of them um, has gone through similar issues with her son. The other one has not. And I was not aware that my mom was not really open about all of Sean's drug struggles. So now, every, now we're very open about everything because we want it people to know. As I'm, as I'm hearing you share all of this, um, and thank you for going there. By the way, I know that that's not a um, moment in in your life to go back. Um, but I think about this thing of, you know, I expected it. But were you prepared for it? No. Expecting it, yes. Prepared for it, not at all. And and I think that is one thing that you... I I think, so a lot of my anxiety that has developed over the last two years is imagine your worst nightmare. Um, And that coming true. You know, all of your family died in a car accident or... You know, um, you know, the, pe- people take risks in different ways every time, you know. And so, you know, my dad's a helicopter pilot. He goes up and flies. I mean, I think he spent like f- a total of combined four years of his life in a helicopter, probably more at this point from that I last talked to him. Then you look at Kobe Bryant, you know. So, like, there, there's things that, like, you... Yes, you know this is a risk, but you're not prepared for everything that happens after. Um, and and also speaking to that is my dad, who is a helicopter pilot, who's lost people to crashes and was in Vietnam and lost friends. I don't think he was incredibly prepared for this. And that's where addiction is a different kind of grief. It just has a different aspect to... An accident. And in in speaking to that, this different kind of grief, really wondering, like, what has your grieving process been like? Um, You mentioned before that you have attended therapy. Like, what does that look like for you? How has that been? So 
so my grief therapy was wonderful. Um, and I, I will say I was, I, w- I was lucky in finding the right therapist. Um, I also had a friend who went through this. Um, and so like she, when she went through it, she found a group therapy, like a group that she talked to. I had her. I didn't need to, you know, she was my group. And a few other people who'd kind of gone through things. Um, so I, I can kind of more speak to my process and what I've learned. Um, so it started out where I'd cry every day. And then it kind of went to every other day. And I did notice, and people tell you this, but you don't believe them, but it does kind of taper off. Um, and I think a lot of the first year, it was you cry once a week. You'd cry once a month. Um, my therapist helped me kind of, once I got past to that six month point, which when I started seeing her, that's when you're like, you're not, it's bubbling on the surface, but it's not like coming up all the time. And that was the hard point for me because yeah, three months afterwards, if I break out in tears, people understand why, you know? Um, and you know, I became a little bit more introverted. So I'm a scheduled person. I'm also busy. I'm a mom. I have a business. I have to, I have uh, appearances I have to make where I have to talk to people. So I had to handle my grief in a way that it, I just didn't break down at a dinner party with a trigger. So I had to schedule time where everybody left that was, the house. <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you have to schedule time to grieve? I did. Because, yeah, because like the, this, this, this thing, it's almost like you're containing the grief. Yeah. Like you have to contain it mm-hmm. to, in order to continue on and, and do the things you need to do. It's still something I have to attend to. Or if I'm getting a little agitated, I realize, you know, hey, I need to have a cry session, you know? Um, so, yeah, the for like most of the beginning, I guess, of night 2018, there'd be like one morning, put on my sad music and just let it go. And get it out and just like, and it was so therapeutic to, but also recognizing those triggers of when it was coming was important. You know, if I'm more agitated with my kids and my husband and go, you know what? Okay. It's this feeling and they weren't connected. It just, it it, is the way that it all just, your brain gets jumbled. Yes. Yes. So. And then also coming to the point of, you know, that addiction really controlled him. And seeing my brother through, I guess, seeing the tree through the forest. And so I just, when I first was so, when I lost him, like all I could just see was like mess of trees and green and forest. And it was all clouded with anger, addiction, every experience that we had, everything. You know, but I couldn't see the tree in the middle that was him. And to recognize that and to know that he is out of that pain. And, you know, for me, it helps me thinking that he can look down and watch. Because we also, we had some very, um, we had some horrible business setbacks the month that I lost him. Um, We were cutting our salaries. I didn't know if our business was going to survive. So I was dealing with all of this stress before I lost him. And then after that, our business started to grow. Well, guilt got wrapped into some of that weirdness, and that's where your emotions get all 
jumbled and we decided to move things in a different direction. We have the streaming network, you know. So, but my therapist kind of pointed out, it was like, maybe he can now watch you succeed. Where before there was a lot of jealousy mixed into our relationship. So it kind of was like almost that, that negative energy was removed from my life. And I was given a, no, I still have to work for it, but given that path to, to move forward. Um, and the other convoluted part of this, which I'm not sure if I've told you yet. Um, so my, my book, my Pitch Wars book that had gotten a lot of rejections and hadn't been doing very well, um, I started to get some, some good feedback in June some requests and whatnot. And then the small press requested my, my book and, you know, whatever. Um, I got home from his funeral or celebration of life, which was held on his birthday because he died right before his birthday. So it was July 8th that we held it. And, you know, I was exhausted and tired. I just look at my phone, check my email. And it was, we want to publish your book. So I, you know, I went back and forth. I don't know if this is the right thing, but I said, you know what? I feel like this is a message from Sean eventually, you know, like I just had to go. Um, and so, you know, and, I, and it's taking a long time. I finally just turn in my line edits and whatnot. Um, they're smaller company. So, but I just kind of said, okay, I have to do this. And that also is one of those things of like, you know, I feel like those people you lose, even if you lose them in the worst horrible way, they can still be your garden angels and they can still watch over and be there with you and support you from where they are. But I feel, it feels like you're both free now. Yes. And I, I will say in the, the first few weeks after losing him, you know, I know a lot of other people who have people that they struggle with. I just, I, I kept talking to them and they're like, you know, I'm doing this, this, going through this with X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, oh my God, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to talk that person off the ledge. I don't have to, uh, now other relationships in our life of, you know, fill that gap at points, but, um, you know, and I, and I, I fear for my daughters, I'll be honest, you know, I know I felt that reprieve now and I feel that, but, um, I know what that's like. And I always fear that it's going to come back with anyone that I care about later as they grow up and experience things. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like this, well, they call it a demon, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like this thing lurking in the shadows, I think, sometimes. And um, But I also consider it to be like a perfect storm. Yeah. Sometimes it's about having everything in the same place at the, same, at the right time mm-hmm. or at the wrong time, shall we say. And it just kind of triggers this reaction that is, you know, like your uncle, for example, he recovered, right? Uh, yeah. Well, this is, yes. So he did, but um, he... Um, it took a toll on his brain. Okay. Um, so he developed Alzheimer's. Okay. Um, and he actually passed away on Christmas Eve, 2017. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. 
so, um, and my, um, you know, my, my brother was with my mom when my aunt called and let us know. Um, and so my mom lost her brother and her son within six months. And, and essentially, you know, one from an overdose, one probably from the effects of drugs all your life, you know. So, you know, that's where it just becomes very... You've got the full story of addiction right there, you know. Um, right. In terms of the, should I continue doing this and survive for, a, for longer? Or do I mm-hmm. live a shorter life because my addiction is more acute, so to speak? One thing right. I do want to ask you about, and of course she's not here and I'm very aware of asking about people's experiences who are not present. Your mom, she she grieved a different way from you. Yeah, she's always been very religious um, and and not like, okay, she's always been connected to the church and took us and kind of, that was her decision. She's not like a super one way or the other, but that's where she found her connection, you know, and she, you know, goes to Bible study every Friday. She has like a big women's group. Well, they're, they're not meeting now, but. It sounds really nice. It sounds like community, like, you know, yeah. like. Uh... And, I mean, and the thing is, it's not just like, they don't just study the Bible. I mean, she goes to like a dance class there. You know, like, she's just gotten involved a little bit more and not in a way that is like, oh, I need to, like, find solace here or there. I just think she feels peace and that there's something and there. um, She tried therapists that just didn't completely work with her, you know. And, I mean, like I said, we have a hard thing because we like wine. We drink wine. He had an issue with things. <laughs> so, you know, and so I think our therapist was like, you know, a recovered addict who was like, you can't drink anyone, you know. And there's always that, like, how do you, because some people have it and some people don't when it comes to that level of addiction. Um, you know, my mom's also at an age where she's, she's older where she can drink wine, but she's got other you know, effects to where it doesn't make her sleep well. So she's good at like monitoring, you know, so like she doesn't have that. But some people with addiction can't respect that aspect because they don't know what it's like to have two glasses of wine at five and six o'clock and then stop. And so, you know, how do you, you know, but my mom's really great at that. She's like, well, I don't want to sleep like crap. Why would I keep drinking? You know, (laughs) She's like, but I like that loose down before I get to that, you know. So, but she also knows, like, if I drink another glass, I'm not going to feel good, you know. And I think that's one thing that I'm just like, wow, like, Sean never felt that. It sounds like you're still discovering things about him even now as you kind of continue on without him, so to speak. Like, without him in this way, it sounds like his presence has shifted into a different presence in your life. Yes. And he's still, he's still part of our, like, you know, my, my, my oldest is very much aware of him. She, she remembers him quite well. Uh, and she asks a lot of questions, you know? And so, um, 
you know, she has pictures with him. She knows that. And I think that's part of our day and age. You know, we record everything. Yes. Yeah. So, and publish everything. Yeah. Right. And so even when she looks back at her, like, baby photo albums, she sees him with her, you know. So I think that's also part of it where my three-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And he's always going to be a part of her life. I know yes. our anxiety. I was listening to a podcast last night, actually. Um, it was Brene Brown's new podcast, Unlocking Us. And she was talking about um, a psychologist's work, a psychologist called um, Harriet okay. Lerner. And she talks about in her book, The Dance of Connection, about how there are two kind of responses, generally speaking, to anxiety. Like we can either overfunction. Like, you know, where's the fire? I need to put it out. I'm here to save the, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. I'll figure everything out. Don't worry. Or we underfunction. We kind of freeze. Mm-hmm. We do less. Yeah. We kind of pull back. Um, and I think sometimes our anxiety mm-hmm. around addiction can go to that place of like, I'm worried it's going to come back in a different person. I'm worried who's going to be impacted by it. I think sometimes we don't consciously give ourselves the chance to wonder whether Sean's story may actually prevent someone from going down that path, you know? Um, As they get older, as they learn about his real details, you know? Because these are adult themes, right? We don't, children, you know, learning too much too early is this thing. Um, They just, they don't have the ability to comprehend and cope the, you know, a young adult would, for example. It, It has been an interesting conversation between my husband and I and how much we tell her um you know at so my my younger daughter has a lot of allergies so she's been on medication for most of her life um and so you know every night we'd measure and so when Mari was five when he died I told her you know look he took too much medicine you know so you know when you see mommy and daddy you know measuring so that's why we measure because anything because it doesn't have to be you know, a serious drug, you could, you have to monitor anything and certain interactions, you know, um, this is a a thing that in our day of medicine, anybody needs to learn at some point. So that's what we had told her. And then I finally told her, I think this just maybe in the last two months, because she's seven now. Um, and she's a little bit more aware. She's watching a little older shows. She's watching some movies that are a little higher content. You know, he overdosed. He took a drug that is not okay to take. Um, you know, and, and I think her understanding, you know, there are limits to everything because we work in an alcoholic-centered business. Um, it is an important thing to raise them in and so it's been a difficult you know that's always going to be a difficult thing for her to know understand and then as she gets older to navigate you know um as we kind of kind of I suppose come towards the end of our chat today I I I think about podcasts and about how a lot of people engage in podcasts for a you know what should I do or what, what can I do? Or like, you know, like almost like a self-help kind of mm-hmm. approach. And I realize that not everyone wants to connect with a story that maybe didn't end positively or didn't end, you know, this way. But this is a reality 
for so many families like yours, like across right. America, across the, the world. And I wonder, like, mm-hmm. what would you say to someone if they were to ask your advice, if they had a Sean? So I, for somebody going through it, I feel like I'm not the most apt to give advice only because it didn't end the way that we wanted it to. Um, and I also personally feel you can do the best you can to support them, but they are their own person and they have to make those choices for themselves. And, um, I know that a lot of times in the decisions that I made towards the end of his life, um, I was setting up boundaries for myself because if I would have allowed him in to some things, um, my girls would have been exposed to a lot more. And I, I didn't necessarily want them to see their uncle on drugs. Um, and so I made that decision for myself. And I did the best that I could to support him for myself. But he was never going to make a decision to stop doing drugs for his sister. He wasn't going to make stop making those decisions for his nieces he saw every few weeks. Maybe if he had a child of his own or a girlfriend or somebody, it would have been a different situation. Um, so there wasn't really much I could do from that distant relationship, but I was probably him and my mom were the closest ones. Uh, but on the other side, that same principle is true, and you have to... Think about yourself and what you want to do for yourself and protecting yourself and, um, you know, knowing that they are still part of your life and creating a positive reflection of them despite whatever happened in those years during addiction Um, and really benefiting yourself, going for the walks. You know, like I remember my therapist asking me, like, what's your... Uh, if you don't go to church, do you go into nature? Do you go for, like, where do you get your solace, you know? Um, and how important that is in anything. And I know, like, my work can control me all the time, my kids. And I have to really, I'm much more recognizable about, like, my own mental stability in anything and paying attention to that. I, I think, I. I think about the micro addictions that help us cope every day. You know, the kind of socially acceptable one. Someone once told me, a supervisor once told me that overworking was the most socially acceptable form of self-harm. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and that really came for me. I was kind of like, oh my, like, how did you know? <laughs> like, you know, yes, yes. It, you know, and it was, it really caused me to pause and reflect on yeah. the things I do. The, the things I think yep. we all do, especially, you know, we're recording this during a pandemic where we are being yeah. forced to take care of ourselves, to be in isolation. Many of those struggling with addiction where I work have said is, yeah, welcome to our world. <laughs> like we've always been at risk. We've always been isolated. We've always yeah. been, we've always had all of these things, you know, coming up for us. And guess what? Our world hasn't stopped just because yours has. Yeah. I don't think anybody should be doing anything in particular during this time. I think just pulling through 
and doing what is best for you, whether that is having therapy, being with family, being on your own, going to church via YouTube or whatever it is that, you know, that you need to support you through this. And what I think I've learned from you today is just how much um, addiction can tear you apart. It can tear a family apart and it can play havoc on everyone but just how much as well it's kind of united you and how much Sean's spirit has stayed with you that's kind of the best way I can describe it there was much more of a divide when he was living than now between all of us um which isn't it doesn't always make me feel good but at the same time just recognizing that is you know but we need each other. I mean, my, my parents and I and my kids, we need each other, you know, and you realize just like even that pain in the ass that, you know, like, I mean, I missed it. Like my birthday was Monday and Easter was Sunday and I missed him, but I'm like, he would have been a shit. He probably would have like either not shown up or been late or like, you know, I mean, he wouldn't have like brought a positive aspect um, but I missed him, you know, and, and just kind of also recognizing that and just, you know, my mom and I are just like, every time we talk about, oh God, cause thank God he's not alive now. Cause I, imagine, imagine adding that extra stress of how he's handling this, you know, and everybody's, you know, pay is furloughed or my dad's not able to work. It's like, and they were supporting him. Like, how could that have worked? You know? And so all of those things, which I feel bad for the families that are dealing with that. And I'm, you know, I do worry about people in their home who struggle with addiction. And um, so, you know, it, it is, that's, I can say that from the other side. And it reminds me a little bit about, you know, when you think, when I, yeah. when I think about the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic yes. stress disorder, the symptoms that persist longer than a month to become PTSD. They they normally only show up when a person leaves the 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 environment that the, the trauma. Yeah, yeah. So like you know, soldiers from a battlefield, that kind of thing. Like your dad coming back from Vietnam, so to speak. And in a way, I think about all of you post Sean's death, and how it's there are there's so much more that we see. And almost like, uh, how did we do it? Oh, completely. And even different from a year ago. You know, I I couldn't have the out... I didn't... I will say a year ago, I did not have the outlook that I have now. Um, And um, I think I was in um, my... With my therapist for about 10 months. Um, It ended because she was pregnant and had a baby. Okay. Um, and then... Um, how dare she? I know, how dare she? Um, and then, so she started getting back to work and then the pandemic happened. Um, so I'm sure she will see me again <laughs> after all of this is done. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I think all of this takes time. And that's the other thing that I everybody says time heals and I kind of thought that was bullshit until this and it really but you have to put the work in to heal or time will not heal so someone told me once that it doesn't get better it gets different yes yeah and you live in your normal and that's I mean 
but life is like that. I remember feeling after I had a baby for the first time, um, and I would go out in public and I wanted to tell like the cashier, like, I'm a mom now. Like I, I, I'm not the same person I was like a month ago, you know, I'm a mom. And that's kind of how it felt like after Sean, it's like, I, you know, I lost my brother. Like I, I'm not, I'm not an only child cause I still have my half brother, but I, you know, I have experienced these things, you know, that's kind of like, and that's where you don't realize people bring all their baggage when you meet them just and be nice because you don't know who their, you know, their losses and, and whatnot. Even though Sean lost his life and he's no longer here, it almost seems like you've, you've gone through a death too. Like a part of you has died to make way for another version of Christina to come through. And, and, I, and I know that can be a strong way of phrasing it, but um, yeah. that seems to be, I think, what grief is. You know, it's almost like a rebirth yeah. and you have to grow again. Uh, yeah, and I, and I also say that's been a struggle with my husband and I because part of it is becoming me, I become more introverted um, and he is super extroverted. And so for me, like, you you know, (laughs) it's it's hard, you know, I, I, I need a lot more alone time than I did before this. Um, and so, and part of that also was, I think after my second daughter, I think I went through some postpartum issues, um, which, and that's where, you know, she was, she was born, I was going through all those issues, and then he came to me, and that's when he admitted he was on fentanyl. So, like, to me, it all kind of just, like, like tumbleweeded together. Um, and, and you know, and that was, like, all the, the writing stuff. I just, everything kind of just, you know. So part of, like, what my therapist and I had to do was, like, pull this part out here and put this here and put this here. But that's also what life does, is it changes you and affects you. And, you know, if you're going to be in a marriage for a long time, those are things you're going to have to experience. Though I think the two of us, we were expecting, you know, we're expecting our parents' death. We're expecting, you know, there's certain things that you just know you're going to deal with. And that was, you know, we didn't, when we got married, we didn't know Sean was addicted to heroin. So, you know, those are things that you just start to experience, you know, and I'm I'm sure my girls will throw me through, hopefully not addiction, but some sort of other, like... Some other big challenge (laughs) that will test you. And I think that, you know, I love that you, I love um, what you've said there, because I think that is like the definition of marriage in a way, like if we don't change and grow together how how do what what do we what do we do then like what is the yeah, you, you know like that's the relationship relationship right. with anyone the relationship I think is to it's reciprocal like there's something in there that and even the relationship you had with Sean like the I have no doubt that you all had a such a great impact on him and when I say great I mean like you know it maybe not always positive but something that was significant that shifted him in certain ways And I really want to thank you tonight. If someone is listening and they are going through something similar, that they they take something from your experience and that they they can empathize with you. I hope so too. I mean, it's not, this is not something I ever wanted to say, yeah, I've been through this. But at the same time, I hope to help anybody else that's been through this because it is, it's a hard thing. 
but I think sharing and being aware of it is part of one of the most important things anybody can do. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Luke.